I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 64 of Caro Pop. Our first live Caro Pop event takes place January 18th, when I'll be interviewing the very smart, very funny actor David Pasquese from Veep, Lodge 49, and the TJ and Dave Improv Show. It'll be at the club space in Evanston, and general admission seats are a mere $12 a piece. If you're in the Chicago area on January 18th, don't miss it. Our Carol Pop guest this week is someone who found a unique way to combine acting and a music career, singer-songwriter Vonda Shepard. She was a regular on all five seasons of the TV series Allie McBeal, which ran from 1997 through 2002. If you watch the show, which many people did, you know that she played Vonda Shepard, the singer-songwriter who performed at a piano bar that the main characters like to visit. Are you here from Lane? I called her, said she had to do something. Is she okay? Sketch the truth. Try her again. Catch the breeze in the winter chill. Shepard also co-wrote and sang the show's theme song, Search in My Soul, and performed on four popular Allie McBeal-related albums. This time of year, you may hear her popular version of K-Star's Christmas song, Everybody's Waiting for the Man with the Bag, as featured in season four. Everybody's waiting for the man with the bag, cause Christmas is coming again. Yet there's much more to Shepard's career than this TV show. She started writing, singing, and playing piano when she was very young, and performed her first gig as a 14-year-old in Los Angeles. She played piano, sang, and danced in Ricky Lee Jones's band, starting at age 20, and she duetted with Dan Hill on Can't We Try, which became Billboard's number one adult contemporary song of 1987. She also was considered for a role opposite Michael J. Fox in the movie Light of Day, and her self-titled solo debut album on Warner Brothers came out in 1989. By the time Allie McBeal creator David Kelly and his wife Michelle Pfeiffer saw Shepard perform live in Los Angeles, she was looking to reignite her career. She'd been dropped from Warner Brothers, had released two more albums, The Radical Light and It's Good Eve, and was playing to 30 people a night while living in New York. Kelly liked what he heard and invited Shepard to work on his new show. He needed a theme song and picked Search in My Soul out of a selection of her songs. What began as an occasional on-camera guest spot for Shepard turned into a regular gig. Behind the scenes, Shepard also produced the other stars who performed on the show, such as Sting, Al Green, Chubby Checker, and Gladys Knight. What was that like? In the meantime, she kept her own creative juices flowing, releasing the albums By 730 in 1999 and Chinatown in 2002, and she continued to produce new music after the show ended. Her latest album, Red Light, Green Light, came out in September and leans into her soulful voice, piano playing, and intelligent, tuneful songwriting. Like most of her albums, it was produced by Mitchell Froome, who also happens to be her husband. Vonda Shepard is a working musician, and our conversation covers a lot of ground, including what was the first song she wrote, and how has her approach changed over the years? What did she learn from touring with Ricky Lee Jones? How vindicated did she feel when her Allie McBeal hit theme song came from the album that Warner Brothers had rejected? 
How did appearing on Allie McBeal change her life? Has she been involved in talks about an Allie McBeal reboot? What does she have to do now to get a new album out into the world? She says she wants to write a memoir, and in an effort not to steal any thunder, I asked what would be its fourth juiciest story. How does that request go over? You can hear all that and much more in this Carol Pop conversation with Vonda Shepard. Thank you so much, uh, Vonda, for joining me on Pop. I really appreciate having you here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What was the, what was the first song you ever fell in love with? Oh, wow. God, I haven't been asked that in so long. Um, I think it was You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Uh, and then I ended up working with her producer, Richard Perry, later, and we used to chat about Carly, and it was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. I uh, I just had on Klaus Vorman, who did the cover of Revolver, and he uh-huh. played bass on that song. Sort of blew my mind that the guy who did the cover of the Beatles album, Revolver, is also the guy who does that wonderful bass introduction to You're So Vain. You're kidding. That's him? Oh, wow. I should, guy. My, I should read my credits more, but that's cool. Yeah, it was so intriguing, that that intro. It was, And she says, son of a gun. You know, she kind of whispers. <laughs> I loved it. Um, yeah. At what point did you think, I want to write songs as opposed to perform songs? Well, the writing just was so natural. And I started with poems at the age of eight. And then Mm. I I had been playing piano already for a couple of years. So that went naturally into songwriting. Um, But once I once I played my first gig at the age of 14, you know, they were they were neck and neck, basically, you know, writing, performing. They were tied for um, what I wanted to do with my life. Would you write the lyrics first or did you sort of come up with that in the music at the same time? Because you were doing poems, obviously. Right. When I was young, you know, it's funny you bring that up because now, well, now for the last 35, 40 years um, or more, I usually just sit down at the piano and kind of start playing kind of chords and a melody and gibberish or maybe a couple of lines and the whole thing kind of develops together. Whereas when I was a child, I think a lot of the lyrics did come first. But then it just sort of transitioned into this um, this method of sitting at the piano and having it all just uh, kind of start revealing itself together. Do you remember the first song it was that you wrote? Oh man, yes. <laughs> I think I think the first song I wrote was called "Lazy Days." And uh, I actually have demos of these songs that I transferred from cassette over the pandemic because that's what everybody did over the pandemic. They found their archival material, photos and videos. And um, and I'm going to start releasing some of these demos from when I was 10 years old, 11. Oh, wow. Yes, I know. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> well, how did, how did they sound to you when you went back to them? Let me just tell you this. My voice got better over time. <laughs> it was uh, very edgy. My voice was very edgy. Um, but the demos were fully produced because when I was growing up in a very artistic family, we had people crashing on our couch a lot. Um, friends of my dad's, um, one of whom was a, a journalist, a music journalist, and he got me my first gig. And he basically um, took me in the studio with some friends of my dad and brought in people from like Oingo Boingo and oh, wow. yeah, and brought in um, some very well-known LA session musicians when I was really young. I'm talking, you know, well, before I was 16, let's just say. Um, so the demos sound, you know, pretty, pretty produced and pretty seventies, you know? Um, and actually before that, 
guy took me in the studio, Christopher. Um, my father had these friends called this band called the Hello People, and they had a studio. So when I was nine, 10, I went in their studio and have these demos from then. So I think it would be cool to release them. So this is all in LA? Yes. Were you also someone who, you know, if, if your parents were having a party, would you like sit at the piano and entertain everyone or? Heck no. I was incredibly shy and it's really an anomaly that I'm a you know, performer, because I'm really not a performer. I share music with people on the stage, but I'm not like, Hey, there's no business like show. <laughs> um, no, I'm just rambling, but, um, definitely not. In fact, to the degree that when someone would come over and I was writing or singing or practicing, I would literally stop and hide because I couldn't stand for people to hear what I was doing. I mean, in general, do you get more of a charge out of being in the studio or being on a stage? They're equal for me. Some of the best moments are actually working with Mitchell Froome, who produced my last, you know, several albums, because, you know, you sit there and you don't know what to expect. And he's so good at arrangements that that's one of my favorite things, even though it, it puts you in a vulnerable position because you're about to, review, you know, play this new song that's no one's heard. Um, so that's one of my favorite parts of the process. Performing is just a blast because People know the songs. They're there to have fun. They're full of love and they're smiling and they're singing along. I mean, how bad could that be? You know, that's a pretty, pretty cool experience. And then the writing is the most difficult and the most tedious, but also so rewarding. Are you someone who's writing all the time or do you write like when you have to? I used to write all the time and it is much more compartmentalized now. And I, I kind of have to make a decision to write now. And if I were more open, like I guess in some ways, I would always be writing because I feel like the ideas are there and it's just a matter of focusing on them. Um, but when you have, you know, a family and a house to run and a lot of responsibilities, it becomes much more difficult to just be this free spirit, you know? And you play multiple instruments, right? Like your piano is like your main one, but not you also really. Play guitar. Uh, I saw it somewhere. It says, says plays guitar and bass. And I know. <laughs> I don't know where bass came in. I must have had a Kaz party once. What? Kazoo. Kazoo. We all kazoo. play kazoo. Yeah. Accordion. No, I, I, I did actually. Um, I, I literally had one party where we used to have parties, um, really nice, fun parties where all these cool musicians would show up and jam like Greg Lees and Jackson Brown. And, you know, our pals would come. And I did pick up a bass once, but I don't play the bass. And Mitchell uh, was saying, like, what are you, what are you playing? <laughs> it was ridiculous. But I used to play guitar and I don't really play that much anymore, but I'm capable of it. So do you do all your writing on the piano? Like, like I was, I was kind of curious if you played multiple instruments, if you ever sort of picked up a guitar and tried to write on the guitar just to mix things up or if it's pretty consistent piano. Oh, yeah. Well, it is mostly piano, but, but for a year I lived in New York City right before I got my big break. And and um, I couldn't play much piano because it would annoy the neighbors. So I had to, uh, I could have used headphones, but I like playing out. Um, so I actually started playing a lot of guitar. And the album by 730 has a song called um, Mercy, which is a guitar song that I'm playing guitar on. And it has um, a song called Confetti. And I'm playing on that. It's got Newspaper Wife. 
I'm playing guitar. So I was forced to kind of focus on guitar because of my situation. And it was great. Did you also have sort of aspirations for acting? Well, funnily enough, I studied acting for, for a solid five years in my late teens into my early twenties. And I really was heading in the acting direction along with music. And I started to get big, um, what are they called? Screen tests. Like I did a screen test for a movie with Michael J. Fox. So I got all the way to that point and I didn't end up getting the movie, but you know, I was auditioning for big, big things. And one thing I really realized is, is, is this music is so, so much fun and all, everything about it is so fulfilling to me that I kind of left the acting world. Um, and the fact that I got to be on Ally McBeal was, was cool, but I wasn't really acting. I was just, I was singing my own song, you know, singing. And you got to be yourself. It was like a great bargain. We're like, give this fictional show. And there it is like, oh, we're going to go see Vonda Shepard now. And she's going to sing some song. Isn't that unique? It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't think of like another comparable thing to that but but yeah no I'd, I'd seen that you tried out for light of day and um like i mean obviously if you pursued it for that long you must have had some thoughts of i want to have this sort of acting career too i did think about it i mean um acting was part of my family history um my father did did a lot of acting not not in things you would know um and you know i definitely was interested in it i got i delved deep into the method acting. And I studied with John Sarno, who passed away. He used to live with Ilya Kazan. So I was in mm. that method acting, um, you know, whole world. And it was fascinating. And I guess you only have so much time in life. And and I wanted to be really good at whatever I did. And I preferred music over acting. So I did it. Were there any performers who you were sort of looking up to like, oh, I want to have like this kind of career? As a, as a singer, as a singer or, or an actor at that, or someone who is combining both, you know, like your Barbara Streisands of the world or something. Well, yes, I know what you're saying. And I do really admire those people who, who fully, you know, branch, branch out into all of those areas and do really well. It seems exciting. I've, I've always thought I might go on to be on Broadway someday. And when I did, um, when I did Faust in New York with Randy Newman, it was just a couple of performances at City Center. But, you know, I got a little dose of what it would be like to be in a Broadway show. And it was kind of like intriguing and I, I'm, you know, still on the table. So. And you worked with him on Ally McBeal because you, didn't you also like produce the other performers who ended up on that show? I did. Um, yeah. Most people who watched the show just assumed I was the singer in the bar. And some people didn't know I wrote a lot of the songs and they didn't know I was a behind the scenes producer. Uh, yeah. So I got to produce, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Sting and Randy and um, Barry Manilow and such a bevy and Al Green and Gladys Knight and Chubby Checker. And just they, they just kept streaming in. And I was very comfortable, very at home in the production world and didn't, you know, didn't kind of faint <laughs> at the prospect of producing these people. It was just really fun. Would you say that you had a specific sort of production approach? Like, was there something that you wanted to get out of them that they might not have, you know, gotten there, you know, without your guidance? I would say that I was very much interpreting David Kelly's script. And um, I'd have, you know, I'd read the script, obviously, before every episode that I went in the studio to record for. And I, I feel like, I don't know, we were kind of in sync um sonically emotionally you know so that i was really picking up on what he wanted to bring out of the music 
I also have an incredible, had back then an incredible band who knew me so well and they knew what I liked. And David Kelly liked what my sensibility was. So it really clicked. And yes, I definitely brought out what I feel like is the best in a lot of those artists. And it was, it was pretty great job. Like you get to say, okay, Al Green, this is how we're going to do it now. <laughs> well, I, the thing, the story I like to tell is when I was 16, my favorite album was the Bell album. One of my favorite mm. albums, Al Green, the Bell album. You know that one? I do. It's like the one he produced himself and it's all, he plays guitar on it. Speaking oh, of playing wow. guitar. See? Yeah. Wow. Well, so at the, you know, at the end of one song on the Bell album, you hear him, he's, he starts laughing. I think it's country boy. It's just, you know, just because I'm from the country. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> song, he, he kind of goes, yeah. <laughs> and on the track I did with him, there was that laugh, that amazing Al Green laugh. And I'm, you know, suddenly in my thirties producing this icon to me. So it was incredible. Was there anyone else you worked with who you were kind of awestruck when you realized you were going to work with them on the show? I mean, just, just to have Gladys Knight walk in and say, you know, Hey Vonda, you know, what are we doing? <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay. Gladys, um, you know, these, this is like the music I grew up on hearing Gladys Knight, Al Green, Chubby Checker. Well, not so much Chubby Checker, but, um, and you know, I'd say when Sting walked in, I, I was, I was not intimidated, but I was a little nervous and, you know, we got it right. It all worked out pretty well, I think. So, and as far as people, you asked me the question of people who I admire and look up to. I mean, there are so many great artists that I grew up listening to, like Carol King, you know, Joni Mitchell, of course, Ricky Lee Jones, who I ended up working with. And she actually, she actually studied with um, John Sarno too. She asked me for my acting coach. And she did some classes with him. So we all, you know, as a community helped each other. Now you, you toured with Ricky Lee Jones, right? Like you were in her band. I was, I was 85. I got a call um, to audition because the, my boyfriend at the time was her keyboard player and she wanted a woman. She wanted a woman to play keyboards, sing and dance. And uh, so I auditioned and I went back on a Tuesday, played some more songs with them. Wednesday, played more songs. By Friday, they handed me an envelope and it was a check um, because I got the gig. They didn't ever say, you're hired. They just handed me a check and they oh, like, that's funny. I know, isn't that great? Did they fire your, your boyfriend and just have you on keyboards or did you both get to be in the band? Well, they, they let him go temporarily, let's just say, because she wanted a woman. So no, we were not in the same band together. Interesting. What did you, what did you learn from sort of that viewpoint, watching her, you know, be upfront in all those concerts? Well, she is very meticulous, which I really highly respect. She's incredibly, you know, perfectionistic, um, but she's also so good and so creative. Um, and I just watched someone who is in command of the audience, in command of the show and in command of herself. She, she was so powerful and believed in herself so much. Um, so it was great to see that. Um, I saw that also with Al Jarreau, who I was with for four years. Yeah. And I, I saw it with Al Jarreau. I saw this man walk out there at Wembley Arena in front of 16,000 people. And I got to be on the stage playing keyboards and singing and watching his connection with the audience, his communication, his performance, how he got lost in the music. So I had, you know, I was like an apprentice to these incredible incredible masters at what they did. 
the first time you were the, you know, the front person in front of a lot of people, were you, by that point, were you comfortable with it or were you totally scared? I think the first time I walked out on stage was at a festival in the summer and it was about 5,000 people and Ally McBeal had just hit, like it had won mm. the Golden Globe. And I, like I went out after on hiatus, I went out on tour right from, from the set basically and I did not know what to expect. I walked out there and there were five I mean, people screaming and I'm just up there. And I was, it was a party for me. It was just like, finally, you know, we made it. And it was, it was really exciting. And I was not nervous. It was fun. It was a celebratory thing because you've been doing this for a long time. Yes, exactly. And so, so you'd originally before Ally McBeal, you'd been signed to reprise and you had a self-titled debut album. So like, what was that experience like of just getting signed to a label, you know, recording the album, how, however much control you had over it at that time, sort of what you knew and didn't know? Well, um, you know, I had been playing clubs since 14 um, and Warner Brothers started coming out to hear me play when I was about 20. Um, right around the time I got the Ricky Lee Jones gig, I was still consistently playing clubs. So I did artist development with Warner Brothers for four years, literally. And that means they were paying for my demos. They'd take me to lunch. They'd talk to me in the <laughs> in the office, which was all really nice and well and good. And I felt supported. But there came a point when, you know, uh, other labels finally started coming around and getting interested. And so, you know, so they finally had to make a decision because I was getting offers from other labels and they finally signed me, took a while. And, um, my A&R man was Felix Chamberlain who totally understood me and believed in my music. Um, so he was incredibly supportive, but you know, there were other executives who wanted me to go a little more pop than was my style. I was more of a singer songwriter in my mind, you know, influenced by these seventies singer songwriters to, 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 um, be pushed into more of like a Paula Abdul kind of world because it was the, you know, it was the late eighties. <laughs> and, um, so they, you know, there were business people and they pushed me into pop, super pop music. And you can hear it on the album, the first side, you know, side A, side B, they sound a little different. Um, and I learned since then, but it's very, uh, it's very tricky being, you know, a young woman back then in the business. That's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would do it differently now. I'm not saying I would be a total utter diva, but I would find a way to diplomatically stand up for my, you know, myself and my music. So you learn as you go. You listen to like red light, green light, and there's a more sort of organic sound to the newer thing. And, you know, more of a, a little more of a timestamp on that, even though it's not like, it's not like totally like, you know, you know, the big gated drums or anything like that, but it just <laughs> right. has a little, but it has a little more of that kind of sound, which is fine because that's when it was recorded. True. And, you know, even putting sax saxophone on don't cry, Eileen, you know, that's kind of a jazzy decision. And the song sounds more jazzy than I was. I mean, I studied bebop jazz, believe it or not. I'm not a good bebop jazz player, but, um, you know, having the slick sound, the reverb, the, um, the sax, and then on some of the other tunes, like I shy away, um, you hear the super pop drum sound pro all programmed. And, you know, I was sitting at the piano singing and writing songs. So that was a little weird, um, a little weird for me, I have to say. The whole four years of artistic development, do do labels even invest in young artists like that now? I don't think so. Um, you know, they give it like three weeks, I think, <laughs> nowadays. Right. 
Well, that's what I was thinking, because I was just thinking just that whole idea of, you know, like the label would sort of let you build your audience and and the fact that that you had four years before you even had an album out that you were working with them. On one hand, it was like, all right, come on, guys, sign me already. But on the other hand, at least there was some investment in you as opposed to, oh, what's your what's your platform? How many Twitter followers do you have? You know, how many SoundCloud downloads do you have? like like all that sort of thing? Now it's like I think feel like it's more expected of the artists to kind of do the heavy lifting themselves. And if you're already if you're already really popular, then we won't take a risk. We'll just sign you and you know make it work. Yes, you're a hundred percent right. I I shopped this album, which I think is a really good, solid album. Very happy with it. And I got like, oh, what's your community reach? What's your, you know, uh, is the vernacular of you know how many followers and how many this and what's your, yeah. I mean, it was kind of astounding. And you're right; it makes me appreciate what I actually had, even though it was, you know, I was impatient. I wanted to get signed and put the record out they were behind me. They bought me a recording studio from my house. You know, I mean, they bought me a desk, a board, wow. and a eight track, eight track, uh, like a reel to reel machine. They spent, you know, a few, a few grand on my studio so I could keep writing, which was very cool. Where did you feel like you were in your career when Ally McBeal came along? Were you happy with, with how things were going at that point? I had done two albums for Warner Brothers, gotten dropped, and I was I was writing It's Good Eve, and I was living in New York, and I flew out um, to L.A. to do a show and invited um, Michelle Pfeiffer and David Kelly, um, and it was at a time in my life when I was living in New York, I was playing to tiny you know, audiences, 30 people, literally, so I had had this break on Warner Brothers, did this, was working on this indie album, and um, it just was... It was really uh, disappointing, let's just say, um, that people didn't know who I was. I had all this energy to work. Um, and when I got Allie McBeal, you know, it was just such a relief because I like to work and I like to do what I do. So even though it was a different kind of um, format for me, it was an absolute welcome experience. The concert that you did that David Kelly and Michelle Pfeiffer saw, were you when you were doing shows at that point, were you playing with a band or were you doing solo? I was playing with a full band, actually, because I had a manager who believed in me. Um, and she she said she kind of, you know, funded the the gig and said, let's just get you playing. And um, I was opening for somebody, I think, at the time. But um, yeah, so I had some support in that way, thankfully. And full band. Most of the time I've had at least a couple of musicians with me. Playing solo is not my favorite thing to do, but in the show, I like to play like two or three by myself. Would you have played Search in My Soul at that concert that they were at? I No, I wouldn't have played Search in My Soul. I wasn't, it wasn't in my uh, repertoire at the time, even though it was originally on my second album. Did he just go back and find that song or did you say, hey, here's one that might work? Okay, that's that's a good question. So what happened was, while he was watching that show, I was um, the live show at the gig at the Key Club, it was called. Um, I was playing the, uh, the the songs from It's Good Eve. And one of the songs is called The Wildest Times of the World. And that was the song that he kind of clicked with, connected with the most. Um, so he basically called and said, hey, do you want to work on this this show, Ally McBeal? And then he said, we need a theme song. We went in and recorded Tell Him for the first you know episode or the, or the pilot. And um, my manager said, let's play him some of your songs and give them a shot. So we rented a 
rehearsal studio and invited David Kelly and the producers of the show down and played them five songs of mine. Um, Will You Marry Me, Search in My Soul. I don't even remember what the other ones were. But at the end of playing the five songs, David said, if you can um, make this song, you know, cut it down to one minute, then this is going to be the theme song. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, you can imagine what I did. I had, I sped it up. I cut off one section, you know, I, I made it happen. So. You made it a minute long theme song. So that's on the album, ironically, that that you did for Warner Brothers and they dropped you afterwards. Correct. And it's, and it's a song and it's a song that sold, I think, roughly like five bajillion copies eventually. <laughs> right around there. Yes. When you wrote it, did you think, oh, like this is a standout song or was it just like one of the songs on the album at that point? Oh, it was definitely a standout song. And that's one of the songs I worked on with Richard Perry, the great Richard Perry. Um, and we spent one year on that song. Richard likes Whoa. to take his time. Yes. We recorded it. I, I think it was, we recorded it, I think four times we had people come in, we had special guests, programmers come in. The final version um, was more of like the full band playing in the studio. But yes, we worked very hard and long on that song. Wow. That's incredible vindication to have spent all that time on it and then have it had come out. And then what, what is it like six years later or I don't know, several years later, then it's like, boom, everyone knows the song. Yes, it is. It is. I must say it was a good feeling. And it, um, you know, I felt, I felt like at the time Warner brothers, it would have been nice if they had stuck with me a little more. Um, but that didn't happen and it's okay. Moving on. They kind of got the message. I would think. (laughs) I think so. I think so. It's always nice when it's always nice when that happens. It is nice. It is. And, you know, I'm just one of many artists on the label. I'm not, you know, it's my story is not unique. All of us have been dropped before, you know. At what point did David Kelly say to you, hey, you know what, we want you on camera as opposed to we want you providing us the theme song? Pretty early on, um, I was, like I said, living in New York and they and he invited me to be in the pilot. And right. So and that was our first um you know, scene in the bar in on the show. And I was still living in New York, came to LA, shot that episode, and we watched the pilot. And he said, You might want to come back to LA. You might want to move back. <laughs> and we watched it and we're like, oh my God, this is something special, this thing. So I left New York, came, came home to LA, got a nice cute little house, and uh started working my ass off. So, all right. So this is a cliched question, but sometimes cliches are there for a reason. How did your life change doing that show? Well, the doors opened for me playing live, which was huge to me. That's the biggest and best thing that happened for me. Um, and I, I don't know, I got to tour as much as I want anywhere I wanted. I had a number one record in Spain. I had a number one record in Turkey, you know, so it was, it was just incredible. Um, and, and my life was so focused on work. Um, with Allie McBeal, I would read the script, wake up, get to the studio at 10, teach, you know, teach um, the guys the songs, um, go through them, record, stay late. Sometimes the next morning, go on the set at 5 a.m. and film. Um, on weekends, I was flying out and doing um, doing shows and uh, doing, prom- you know, promotion. And I just got so insanely busy for five years, basically. And, uh, while I was, I was happy, I was just happy in the studio. I had a job. I was making money. You know, I got to buy my house, which I love. 
So it's a blessing. You're in the studio and then you were also on set working, working on the show in addition to all that. So you had these different facets of it too. It wasn't just the same thing. No, not at all. And yeah, I would be in the studio all day. It was exponential. I mean, it just got more and more and more um, music in the show. So we would sometimes work three days in a row, very long hours, 10 a.m. to 3 a.m. Sometimes um, I'd just be there doing mixing until 2, 3 a.m. The next year, once the show was a big hit, they gave us more days to record the three or four songs. And then it was five songs and then it was six songs and we were working a whole week, you know, so it was, it was a lot. Some of my favorite, you know, movies or or shows for that matter have like music really central to them. And it's, it's rare that a show like makes such a commitment to actually integrating the music into it. Cause music obviously just increases the emotional level of whatever it is you're watching. And, and Alan McBeal is a show that it went all in on, on that. And, yeah. and that would be a cool thing to be a part of, I would think. Definitely. Uh, and they did go all in. He went all in. I loved it. I mean, the joke is like Ricky Ricardo on I Love Lucy was the other person who had this much success um, from being um, doing music in a, in a TV show. Right. Yeah. But he still had a he still had a pseudonym in that. You were actually yourself. So. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, wasn't Ricky Ricardo. I forgot. See, that's how much they put it into my brain. And then you had an album by 730. And did you, that was, you recorded that during this whole time, right? I did. I did. Um, I think we had done one album for Ali McBeal, uh, one soundtrack, the first one. And then I put out by 730, I think. Um, yeah. So I went to New York and recorded that album with Mitchell Froom. I think it was the magic shop and brought my band out. And, you know, it was just to be in the midst of a very successful show and have an album that I was doing indie. I was doing the, um, by seven 30 independently. Um, and some people might wonder why. And I, I kind of wonder, but I'm really happy I did. Cause we had total control over it. Did you approach that? Like, this is totally apart from, all that stuff that I've been doing, like with Alan McBeal, this is just like my indie album and it's not related to any of that other stuff. Really? A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I was, I was being totally true to myself. It was the songs I had written in New York. Um, I had spent, you know, that some of that time in New York writing um, by seven thirty, and um, it felt kind of amazing to have this, these two elements completely removed from each other. On the other hand, um, I, I gave David Kelly the song Soothe Me that I had been working on and he put it in Allie McBeal. He put it in um, an episode called Boy to the World instead of Joy to the World. It was Boy to the World and it was one of the most powerful scenes. So even though I was creating for myself, for my you know hardcore indie fans or whatever you want to call them, um, David did take some of those songs and put them on the show. Was there any tension at all of, of you feeling like I want people to separate me a little bit more from the show. Like, you know, me as the artist and like stop yelling Ellie McBeal songs at me when I'm trying to play my new album or that sort of thing. <laughs> well, it's as people know, who know me well, it's been a challenge over the years and I don't, you know, I don't want to say anything negative about Ali McBeal or that experience at all um, because it was a gift to me, but sure, you know, making the set list was very challenging and, and, and now less so because people know my albums. I've, it's been 25 years. Um, but we are not, you know, fools and we play a lot of the alley stuff at the end of the show. And it's also kind of a fun party at the end. So, you know, now, now it's gotten a lot easier, 
but there were years when it was, it was a little bit harder for me to, you know, have spent all this time writing these songs and working on them um, and have people yell out hooked on a feeling, you know, right. There you go. You know, but on the other hand, I had a lot of songs of my own in the show, like, like Maryland and wildest times of the world, baby, dairy, break my heart slow, searching my soul. So I could, I could kind of put my own stuff in there that was, that were familiar to people as well. Yeah. I mean, you had the advantage that the biggest song was one that you wrote. So, you know, at least, you know, when they're shouting that, I mean, like Los Lobos, who is uh, someone who Mitchell Froom produced brilliantly. Kiko is yes. one of my all-time favorite albums, but I always felt bad when I go see a Los Lobos show and someone would yell La Bamba. La Bamba, like, oh, I know. Oh, no, come on. You know, <laughs> Kiko and the Lavender Moon, not La Bamba, okay? I know. I mean, a lot of artists have that kind of situation for one reason or another. Um but you got to play the hits and you got to figure it out. You know, you got to make it work for, for yourself. Um, and then, you know, give the people what they want. The problem is that like, I literally have fans who have never seen Ally McBeal, you know, and they just, they just want to hear the songs from it's good Eve or by seven 30 or Chinatown or whatever. They've literally never seen the show. So they wait patiently and I try to, you know, you can't please everybody. And it's, it's a little confusing. It's a little hard sometimes. Well, that's why as an artist, you have to please yourself and let them come along. It's always a good, it's always a good reminder. I mean, is Allie McBeal a show that, that I just don't even know? Like, is this something where, you know, people catch up to it on Netflix or I don't know, me TV? I don't, I don't know what, what it would be on, but like, is this something where people are like, oh, I just, I just, you know, binged Allie McBeal and all of a sudden, like, I realized that you're awesome or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's on Hulu. Um, it's okay. on Hulu. And so there is a new generation apparently coming up. Um, and now there's going to be, as far as I know, a reboot of the show. My um, next question again, you're good. You're just keep it going. <laughs> and it's in the works. That's all I know. I haven't been asked to be involved, but um, between the streaming of the show on Hulu and the reboot, I, you know, we might have a little resurgence, which, which is always welcome. Got a room about 20 feet away. Has your approach to any of this changed over the years? Like, do you feel like you're writing in a different way or arranging or any of this in a different way than you used to? I write in a pretty similar way for the last, you know, few decades. Um, having Mitchell, you know, right nearby all the time is ex extremely helpful to me because um, he just knows more about music than I do. He's, he studied deeper into it than I did. Um, so that is something that's a little bit different. Like I didn't used to play a new song for anybody until it was finished. And with him, I can play it when it's, you know, coming along pretty well. And he has some incredible ideas that he puts in and that inspires me. So then I take it back and I kind of change a couple chords and, uh, and it's, it's a great process. I love it. It's, it's a gift to me to have him to work with. Do you have a recording setup in your house where you'll, you know, create demos and, you know, work on stuff there? We do. Yes. So I, I have a little room in, in the house where I um, do my writing most of the time. And then we also have a recording studio where Mitchell does all of his albums. Um, so it's a separate um, structure. So you can go out there and we've got 
we've got a lot of gear, ton of guitars, gorgeous piano. And yeah, we'll do, we don't always do demos, but sometimes, sometimes we, he'll just work out some arrangements like with the bass and, you know, a drum arrangement. And, um, but yeah, we do have a gorgeous studio. He's produced some of the best artists around in our, in our little studio in the back. It's cool. Oh, look who's at our house now. Yeah. Mick Fleetwood. Awesome. Yeah. I remember having his, I mean, I have his Richard Thompson records from way back when, I mean, I have a lot, again, I have a lot of stuff he produced, uh, Elvis Costello. I have King of America, which he played on. So crowded mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. He's very good. So red light, green light, you, you recorded there as well. We did. Yes, we did. Actually, we tracked um, my a couple of my musicians don't live in town. They live, you know, a couple hours away. So they, they came into town. We tracked um, Mitchell and I sent them the, the songs in advance and they, they learned them, came in. It was, it was the pandemic. So everyone had right. masks on, you know, everyone tested and we tracked. And then my guitar player actually did his parts through, through zoom, um, not on the same tracking days. He came, you know, he was in after the fact and it's more fun to have him right there with us, but we did it how we had to do it. And the sound is, you could get a perfectly good sound when you're doing it like that. Yeah, they had, it was complicated. They had to set up this whole thing through the, you know, they had a program they had to download um, on the computers and it was very tricky and very annoying and um, tedious, but we ended up editing his guitar tracks and it just, I love, I love the way it turned out. So, and then when you put out an album now, like, like, what do you have to go through to get it out in the world compared to what you used to have to go through to get it out in the world? That's a darn good question. Um, you have to hire a team, you know, since I, since I did this on, on my own, I have a social media helper. I have a videographer. I have, I had, I signed a deal with exploration for distribution. I have, I have a, I had a consultant who was managing me as a consultant. Now she's going to be my manager. Um, we, what did, what else did we have to do? Um, the the distribution company helped set up the release of the albums. They taught us how you need to get onto, you know, this thing called Linktree, where you have all the different places you're going to put the album out. And it's it's just so much minutia and things I never thought I would have to learn. And luckily I have a good team around me. And so the single came out. You know, we hired Black Box Digital Marketing Company. The single came out on the right day and it was everywhere. And, and you know, we did a video um, and then the next single came out and then the third single came out on the day of the release. And it was to me, it was miraculous that it all showed up on, you know, Apple and Spotify and YouTube. And, it you know, the machine worked for that. It just took a lot of advanced work. Have you played shows since it came out? I know you have some coming up, but like in early 23, it looks like. Yes. Um... I did a couple shows up in Vegas and at the Smith Center. And then I did the UK. We just got back a few weeks ago from the UK. And it was my first tour since the pandemic. And it was amazing. It was amazing. We brought the full band. When you were playing your shows in England, by the way, did people seem to know the new album? Like, is, is it, was it working in that way? Like in terms of getting it out there? It really was working. Um, and I was nervous. I didn't know if they were going to know the new album. I played six songs from the new album, not all together in the set. And uh, I would say, who has the new album? And the very first couple of shows, you get like, you know, 
maybe 20% of the audience clapping. We thought, oh, that's not bad. And as we went on, more and more people had it because I was posting about it a lot and you know, putting out videos. And, um, and by the end, I'd say about half the audience would say, yeah, woo. Yeah. And I'd get a lot of requests for new songs. So I felt so, it felt so fulfilling, you know, to have this album, have people know it and actually want to hear it, <laughs> you know, it made me feel really good. And I'm thinking by the time I go to the East coast in January and Europe, it should be even more people who have it. Um, yeah, I'm re I'm really enjoying it, and 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 I also like how it's it is a very much what you were talking about from what, where you where you began. It's a singer songwriter album. It's not like a lot of other stuff to distract you. It's the songs, and a lot of it is you at the piano, mm -hmm. and you know whatever you know is complementary to that, but not like overwhelming to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. Yes, thank you. You know, one of my favorite parts on the album is the song "To the Stars." At the end, you hear Mitchell's Mitchell Froom's keyboard parts that were in the song, and he soloed them in the studio one day. And I was like, "Oh my god!" It was kind of hidden in the track, and I said, "Can we please tack that onto the end?" You know, to make it really ethereal at the end. And I, I convinced him to do it. He's he can be a little, you know, like. Uh, stingy with hiding his parts in there so you don't know what it is um and then at the end suddenly it's just like this magical thing where you picture yourself floating in space and i love it has being married to him and having him produce your records changed the way you approach music in any way um he has pointed out that i am more comfortable um in a little bit more soulful realm rather than um kind of super airy fairy kind of singing um, with meandering melodies. So he has gotten me to find my most grounded place in singing and writing. And I think he's right. You know, I think, I think I feel more comfortable in a, it's like a soul bass. I'm not a soul singer, but there's like a soul or groove bass, even if it's in a ballad um, it's got like more of a, yeah, that, that kind of describes it. I You're guess. a soulful singer. It's soulful. It sounds like I wouldn't say, oh, you're in the genre of soul, but you definitely have a soulful delivery. Yeah, I think so. And um, he also he also brought out the fact that I I sing backups really well um, and I can blend really well. And, and so I'll do all my own background vocals. And sometimes I'll even put on a character for them and sound, you know, try to sound even more soulful or more airy or and, and I love doing that. It's like it's a challenge for me and I'm into it. So you'll hear that on a lot of the songs, you'll hear the stacked background vocals and they're kind of featured pretty loudly on the album. Do you feel like in general, anything about sort of that kind of songwriting has changed over the years? Like sometimes I'll listen to, you know, the songs that are considered sort of like the big pop hits. And I'll think these are structured so differently from like your Carol King type songs of the seventies. Uh, there's just, there's something about the way the melodies play or the choruses come in or don't have choruses. And I'm just wondering if, if you sort of notice that there's sort of a, I don't even know how to put my finger on it. If there's anything in sort of like that vein of songwriting that has just sort of shifted and, over the years? I mean, I know that a lot of the current songs are written by many people. So that's yeah. one. Element. I mean, so, sometimes they have seven writers on them. Um, sometimes I, apparently they'll all be working on one section and whoever comes up with the best section, you know, wins. <laughs> um, and I think there are some very, very 
catchy, well-crafted pop songs out there, soulful pop songs out there. And I, you know, when, when I'm at the gym, I listen to them um, and I'm, I feel like, okay, there's something going on here, but it is a little different. It's very structured in my mind. It's like each section is very specifically, uh, it's not like there's any meandering at all. It's, it's completely worked out. And if it's a good song or melody or message, that's great. You know, it's still inspiring, but it is very different than, you know, growing up listening to, um, you know, CSN or, or James Taylor or Joni, you know, where this go off on these ideas. It's, it's slightly different. Right. Did you read the Springsteen book? I did. Yes. Wasn't it amazing? Yeah, no, it was great. I love I I love those books in general. I mean, this is like this is why I'm doing this podcast because I get to talk to you know people and musicians about their creative process, and I love that kind of stuff. Oh, um, cool. So so yeah yeah, Bruce Springsteen, if you're listening, love to talk to you as well. I had Stevie Van Zant on, and I'd read his book also, and it was interesting because I did the Van Zant book and then the Springsteen book, so it was kind of like two different angles of a lot of the same. Stuff. Yeah. Oh wow, that's cool. Wow. I'll have so to... those to that you have your memoir ready to go as well or in your outlined well i've been writing in my journal since i was you know 14 um so i have a lot of material and i've had a very long life and career so i have definitely um thought about putting it together into a memoir we'll see what would be the juiciest story in your memoir oh come on <laughs> <laughs> as if <laughs> um uh i can't say i can't say i'm not ready to say so we'll see. So you actually, so there actually is one you have in mind. When I said that there was something specific that came to mind that you thought, no, I can't say that. Oh, I have many that came specifically to mind, but I'm not like that kind of person who would, um, you know, be vindictive because of something that happened in the past. And and so I, I don't think I would say a lot of things that happened along the path that were negative necessarily. <laughs> well, juicy, juicy doesn't have to be negative. It could just be hilarious so i don't know okay all right i'm gonna change my thought in that category okay so i'll let you know <laughs> all right we'll just have a long pause here well no i won't i won't, <laughs> I won't wait you out but i was gonna my, my follow-up was gonna be to try to get this out of you because so what would be like the fourth juiciest story you could save the top three for the book but give give us the fourth oh, one that's so funny. You'd, have to, you'd have to think a little bit um, more about that I'm going to think about all four of them and get back to you on those because. Okay. We'll do another episode of uh, <laughs> okay. Shepard's juiciest stories okay. ranked four through 10. We're not going to do the top three, but four through 10. We'll... Great idea. And okay. we'll, we'll count down 10, nine, eight, and then we'll just stop at four. <laughs> and then our computers will explode. Right. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Yeah. Then, then we'll be taken down by the authorities. Do you have a favorite holiday song to either sing or to listen to? Besides oh Hanukkah, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, you know, we do we do both holidays. I'm I'm half Jewish, so we do we do Hanukkah, we do Christmas, just because it's really pretty and fun. Um, and I, I like the man with the bag actually. Uh, that that doesn't really go over well, um, you know, at the piano because it's a very complicated. Oh, Mr. Kringle, soon gonna jingle the bells that'll take a lot of troubles away. I'm, so, I'm about to laugh while I'm singing. That's great. Yeah, I don't know that yeah, one. Oh, it's no. fun. One time I played a, a Christmas party, a private Christmas party, and I had to learn like 15 Christmas songs. And um, I I think like Deck the Halls is a beautiful song, actually. I like I like playing it on the piano, like with the sixths. I think. What are you most looking forward to 
in the next couple months as far as music goes? Um, these days I need to really keep my voice in really good shape. You know, I always have had to do that, but the older you get kind of the harder work it is. So I just, I'm going to get myself in the best shape possible. So I'm strong when I go out on the road. Um, I do have a couple new songs I'm working on and even though I'm not writing an album at the moment, you know, per se, um, it's, it's really cool to have something to work on. So I'm going to get into those. And I just can't wait to go back out on the road after doing the UK. Just, I got the bug again. I can't wait to get back out there. What do you do to protect your voice or make it stronger? Before I sing anything, I warm up for about a half hour. Every time I sing, even if I'm just, you know, practicing going on, you know, doing sound check. So that's the main thing I do. Um, I get enough sleep and I don't overdo anything in terms of like being uptight about my voice. Cause that the stress of that can just make you um, not relaxed and it's important to be relaxed. So you want to be loose in your life, but, but also have the discipline to go through the warmups and I can't like go to a, a club and talk loudly very often if I'm, you know, and that's not something I like to do anymore anyway. So I have to kind of keep my voice, you know, not overused in general. Do you do anything to protect your ears? Yeah. Um, I don't use in-ears cause I find they're very, um, inhibiting um in ears those you know speakers that are in your ears like headphones on stage in case people don't know what those are um i use monitors old school monitors and sometimes if the sound is bad it's it's just it can pierce your ears so it can be very um <laughs> damaging and painful but sometimes you need to be able to hear the musicians so it's a trade-off and uh yeah but i try not to keep my monitor too loud on the road Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And it's great to talk to someone who knows so much about music. It's very, it's very cool. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, it's great to talk to someone who, who knows and is so good at it. So appreciate it. That's all for episode 64 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Vonda Shepard for all her insights and stories about her wide-ranging musical career. Go to her website, vondashepard.com. That's V-O-N-D-A-S-H-E-P-A-R-D.com to order her latest album, Red Light, Green Light, and to learn about upcoming tour dates and more. You can buy tickets for Shepard's three East Coast shows January 11th through 13th in Annapolis, Maryland, Philadelphia, and New York. In February, she has multiple dates in Germany and France. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who I hear might have hung out at the Ally McBeal Vonda Shepherd's Piano Bar way back when. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends and tune in again next week for another carol pop conversation and if you're in the chicago area please come to our live carol pop conversation with david pasquese on january 18th at the club space in evanston go to evanstonspace.com thank you and happy new year everybody